It is, it's really a joy. I'm here with my wife, Kathy, and my son, Stephen. Uh, we were blessed to worship with you last fall, and it's great to be back with you again today. As uh, Omar mentioned, I bring you greetings from Engaging Disability with the Gospel. That is the, our denomination, the PCA. We're the denominational ministry of the PCA, and so we help churches uh, as they seek to disciple and enfold kids, teens, and adults impacted by disability. So it's, I bring you greetings from that organization. I serve there as uh, the director of church coaching, and it's just great to be with you all today. Uh, today, we're going to take a, this morning a look at a short passage from Luke's gospel, from Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 and read through verse 23. I encourage you to uh, pull up that scripture or open your Bibles uh, before we read it. And we're going to see something remarkable, I think, and beautiful in this passage this morning. We're going to discover together that God has a heart for disability ministry and that it needs to be close to our hearts as well. Uh, the reading picks up sort of in, in mid-sentence, so let me just give you the, the context. Uh, as Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus has begun his public ministry, and uh, it began, uh, he had, he had, he had, he had a, a long, lengthy teaching called the Sermon. In Luke's gospel, we think of it as the Sermon on the Plain. And immediately after that, Luke records that he, re, that he healed uh, a servant of a Roman centurion merely by, by speaking. He, didn't, he wasn't even present. Uh, and then, right after that, Jesus uh, encountered a funeral procession where a widow was about to bury her only son. And Jesus had compassion on her and raised her son to life. And it is, in, it is following these events that we're going to pick up uh, Luke's gospel. So Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 16. This is what we read. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word. Well, our framework this morning is going to be Straightforward. We want to consider the question that John the Baptist asked and sent his excuse me, sorry, and sent sent his disciples to uh, ask Jesus. We want to think about the answer that Jesus gave to them, and we want to think about what that means for you and me today. Let me ask you: did, As we were reading through that, did you find the question that John the Baptist asked to be somewhat surprising? 
Did you find it a little bit surprising? I, I did. Uh, when you think about it, uh, I mean, John the Baptist was born to give witness to Jesus, to the Messiah. Luke's gospel begins with the account of John the Baptist's birth. And it begins with his calling to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, I was going through it, and, and over the first three chapters of Luke, the first 170 verses that are there, 66 of those 170 verses of Luke's gospel are dedicated to telling us about John the Baptist and his ministry. So that's about 40% of the opening chapters are all about John the Baptist and this ministry that God gave him. And of course, we also know that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Right? So given all of that, isn't it a bit surprising that John asked this question? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Why is it? Why, why was John suddenly questioning whether or not his cousin, whether Jesus was the promised Messiah? Well, unfortunately, we're not told in Scripture why John was asking that question at all. Uh, but there's one, there is one explanation that, that, to me that really seems to fit those facts. Uh, we know, as we read through Luke's gospel, that John was in prison at the time uh, of the question. That's why he sent his disciples to ask. That's why they came to him with the news. Hey, Jesus is doing all the stuff, and he sends them out. He, because he was in prison. And he was in prison... Because he, because he had uh, called Herod the Tetrarch to repentance for his unlawful marriage. So in our day and age, we would say that John spoke truth to power. And as a result, power put him in prison. And that's where he was at the time of this dialogue that was taking place. And I think when you look at, at John's messages, it, what you know, John was saying in the early chapters of Luke, it becomes clear that John had expected the Messiah to come in acts of power and of judgment and not in acts of mercy. So, so when he hears that the Messiah is healing and restoring, he's wondering what is going on here. Uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 3, we read this. This is something that John was proclaiming he, of the Messiah. That he, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? Those are sort of powerful words, words of judgment. Um, and not, not mercy, Right? So I think it's reasonable to conclude that John was really wondering why Jesus wasn't bringing judgment against Herod in particular, right? He's, here he is cooling his heels in prison, and he's, he's wondering, Jesus, why, why aren't you doing something? Why, why aren't you judging him for what he has done to me? So John's question, I don't know, it might be surprising to us, right? Uh, but we understand it, don't we? Because what do we do when the circumstances of our lives don't really match up with our expectations of God, right? Doesn't that cause us to doubt and to question and to wonder, to ask, why, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family member? Why this diagnosis? Why 
this set of circumstances. Why did I lose my job? And so on. Right? That, we, we question God in those times. So we can understand John's questioning of Jesus at this point. But let's, let's think about the answer then that Jesus gave to him. The answer uh, that he gave, pointing to uh, the healing work that he was doing and the proclamation of good news. I want to quote one commentator here thinking about Jesus' answer. He says this. He says, in Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and alienated. Let me read that one more time. In Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and alienated. I think that's a fair comment, and I think it's true for a a couple of reasons on a couple of different levels. So let's, let's unpack it just a little bit this morning, right? On the one level, that statement is true because the actions that Jesus was doing and were all a fulfillment of Scripture. All the amazing things that John's disciples saw Jesus doing and heard that Jesus was doing, uh, they came right out of the Old Testament. In fact, specifically out of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we are told, and God's people were told, that when Messiah comes, he's going to do all of these things. That That the lame will walk, that the blind will see, that the poor will have good news preached to them. All of them, all, of these, all of the things Jesus would, was doing were fulfillment of Isaiah. But it's important for us to remember uh, that Jesus wasn't merely checking, checking off the items that sort of on his to-do list, right? Like, here's what Messiah will do. So Jesus comes along. What's on my to-do list? All right, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, proclaim good news to the poor, right? Jesus wasn't just kind of going through the metrics uh, of of what God the Father had for him to do. They weren't just business transactions. Uh, They were reflections of his character. We're going to talk about that in just a second. The reason I I mention that is is this, and I I don't know about you, but I know that for me, when I read a passage like this one, and you think about the way that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, for me, that I sort of reduce that passage to just um, to evidence that you can use when you're talking with a friend who's wondering, is Jesus the Son of God, right? And you, and you think about a passage like this, and you go, well, you know, in Isaiah, 750 years before, Isaiah said, this is what the Messiah would do. And look, here's Jesus, and he's doing all these things. And I tend to reduce a passage like this to just evidence for those kinds of conversations, rather than seeing them as a reflection of the character of Jesus. But they are, they are, of course, evidence, but they are more than that. They are a reflection of his very character. So we want to keep that in mind. Well, on another level, so they're a fulfillment of Scripture, but on another level, I think it's true that what Jesus was doing was proof that he was Messiah. Uh, because apart from preaching good news to the poor, everything else in that list uh, that he was doing They are things that only God alone can do. Only God can do them. And I want to think with you through just two of them. Let's think about two of the things in the list. We read that he was healing those who had leprosy. 
And, and if you've grown up in the church or if you've been in the church for a long time, you might just read that and it might just kind of go, yeah, that's what, of course, that's what Jesus does. He heals those with leprosy. And we might not think about the, how radical, how amazing, how, how wonderful it was. Because when Jesus would heal those with leprosy, right, he would, he would reach out to them, he would touch them, and he would heal them. And that would have been mind-blowing if you were living in Israel at that time. Because... Right, Because the laws, the purity laws, the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament said if you had leprosy, you, were, you had to be apart from society. You couldn't participate in temple worship. You were considered unclean. And if someone was unclean, you weren't supposed to touch them. Why? Because if you were ceremonial, ceremonially, that's hard to say, isn't it? Clean. If you touched someone who was unclean, you would become unclean. Think about that. Someone unclean would always make someone who was clean unclean. That was the way it worked. Unclean, corrupted, clean. So when Jesus touched them, the expectation was, oh no, Jesus, you're going to become unclean. But when Jesus touched them, they became healed and clean. It was the exact opposite of what everybody knew and experienced and expected now, to think about how radical that would have been, think, just think with me for a moment. Imagine, if you will, that there's a, a mud puddle and you put a white glove on your hand and you take your, your hand with that white glove and you, and you dip it down in the mud puddle and you pull it out. And what, do you, what, you, what you would expect, right? The glove, the white glove is now muddy, right? That's our expectation. Well, that's a little, that's the Old Testament way of of thinking about these things. Clean becomes unclean. But when Jesus was on the scene, if he had put the glove on his hand and he put his hand into the puddle, the puddle would become glovey, right? Exactly. Like that, you'd be like, what? I don't know what a glovey puddle would look like, okay? But that's how amazing it was. It's how it reversed everything, And only God can do that. And people knew that. So it's evidence that Jesus was the son of God, that he was the one that John should be expecting. And of course, we also know that the dead were raised up. As I mentioned to you just earlier, just right before in Luke's gospel, he had raised the widow's son to life out of compassion for her. And he just spoke a word and the young man was dead and he came to life. Only God can do that. I think we often wish we could do that. Probably many of you in this room wish you had that ability to speak and have a loved one who's, who's gone on and who's died. And if you could just speak and bring them back, we wish we could, but only God can do that. And Jesus did. And so when God came in human flesh, he was very intentional about reaching, to, reaching out to the physically disabled and to the socially weak, and to the alienated. And again, they weren't just items on a to-do list, and they weren't just shows of power, right? They weren't just, Jesus wasn't just showing off his power. If that was the case, it would have reduced the recipients of his healing to being props in the Jesus magic show. And again, that's not what was taking place here. Jesus healed people out of his heart of mercy. Um, Again, John probably expected Jesus to begin his ministry with acts of judgment. 
He probably, if we were trying to you know, think of it in our day and age, John the Baptist probably expected Jesus to show up and be a little bit more like uh, Thor or Hulk from the, uh, the, the Avengers and the Marvel movies, right? To, to, uh, to make the bad guys pay for what they were doing. That's probably what he expected. But instead, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's acting a lot more like Aragorn in Tolkien's The Return of the King. Not in the movie. They don't show this in the movie. I wish they would have, but it is in the book. The Aragorn actually gets revealed to be the true king of Gondor. How? Because he's going around and he's healing people by touching them. And that was how it was revealed that, oh, he's the true king. And so Jesus was a lot more like that and not at all like Thor or the Hulk. And why did he do that? Why, why, why? Again, because it's a reflection of who he is. It was a reflection of his very character, of his nature, You know, in Exodus chapter 34, there's this amazing self-disclosure of God. God tells us what he is like. And in that passage, he begins with the attributes of merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. That's the way the ESV translates it. Some translations say compassionate and gracious. So right away, you get the sense that the word merciful and compassionate they're interchangeable. Both are excellent translations. But what I want to help you to, to, to see is the sense of the word. Like what, what is that word compassionate? If we say God is compassionate, what does that mean? What does it mean? That was sort of woodenly that, you know, you look at, at, uh, at a Hebrew lexicon and it says to have one's heart go out to, to have one's heart go out to. And that's good. I mean, that's descriptive. Your heart goes out to. Uh, but I don't know about you again, but my heart goes out to a lot of things. My heart goes out to a burrito, especially if it's carne asada, okay? But that's, I don't have compassion on a burrito. That's not compassion. Uh, but Psalms maybe help us a little bit there because the word compassion is used to describe the way a mom is holding her nursing baby. And I think that's a good picture for us of Compassion. Heart, the mom's heart goes out to the baby. But I want you to think about the time. If you've had the opportunity to hold a baby in your arm, whether it's your own child or anybody else's, right? It doesn't matter whose. If someone says, here, hold my baby, and you get to hold that baby, think about it for a moment. Like, what happens in your heart? What happens in your mind, right? You're holding the little one, and you're just thinking, I want to make sure this little one is safe, secure, content, happy, well-fed, Right? That's compassion. That's compassion. And God our Father is compassionate. In fact, I like to think of it, I like to think that this is how God holds each one of us, right? Like the feeling you have holding a baby is how God looks at us, that same compassion for you and for me. And when Christ showed up on the scene, when Jesus was on the scene, he was compassionate, And so Jesus, really in his answer to John the Baptist, was showing us that one sign of the kingdom of God is compassion for individuals and for families that are touched by disability. That's one sign of the kingdom of God. Put another way, God has a heart for disability ministry. God has a heart for disability ministry. And that really shouldn't surprise us. It might, but it shouldn't. Because we see glimmers of it in the Old Testament. I want to just share two, two glimmers with you. One is in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, you know, where we, we get sort of all the laws of the Old Testament. And this is one of the laws God made for his people. 
He said this, he said, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Now think about it for a minute. Why, first of all, why would that even need to be in Leviticus? <laughs> right, like why would that be in there? I think it's because God understands our hearts. And friends, our hearts can be so twisted sometimes that we think it's, we find delight in making fun of people who are different than us or who are other than us. Why would somebody want to curse the deaf, right? I would, cont- I would put out to you that somebody probably thought it would be really funny. Let's curse somebody who's deaf because they can't hear us. Isn't that hilarious? Why would, you put, why would anybody put a stumbling block before somebody who's blind? Unless you thought maybe it was really funny to do that so that you can watch them trip over it. Right, because God knows our hearts. They're that wicked. And he had to put this in his law to say, not with my people. Not with my people. That's not how we treat others. There's another glimmer in Zephaniah in one of the prophets. And this is what we read. Behold, at that time, pointing to the time of Christ, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the, gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. This, friends, is exactly what was happening uh, with Jesus. He was, when he was intentionally reaching out to those impacted by disability and healing them, he was changing their shame into praise. Changing their shame into praise. Why do I say that? Well, you get, again, there, there, you get glimmers of this in Scripture and extra-biblical writings confirm it. If you had a disability, at the time of Christ, if you had a visible disability, you were not allowed to go to the temple. You couldn't go to the temple. Omar began by talking about temples earlier in the worship service. But what would that mean for you and for me, right? Because the temple is where you went to make sacrifices for your sin. It's how you were atoned for. It's how you were made right with God. And if you had a visible disability, you couldn't do that. So you couldn't be made right with God. So you were stuck with guilt and sin and shame. And there was no way around it. So when Jesus healed them, he was restoring their relationship to God. He was allowing them, making it so that they could go to the temple, so they could make sacrifice, so that they could enter into that right relationship with God. But we also see that at the time of Christ, and this continues on in some ways today, that those with physical disabilities, visible disabilities, were not only alienated from God, they were alienated from their neighbors. When you think about it, when you, when you th- they were alongside the road, right? They were sitting alongside the road, begging by, by the road. They were uh, gathered in groups apart from places polite society would go. And so again, by healing them, Jesus was restoring the relationship with their neighbors, Right? He transformed their shame and turned it into praise and renown. That's what was going on. That's what Jesus was doing. And so by doing all that, right, Jesus is, just, is showing us and reaffirming for us that individuals with a disability have intrinsic value, that they're created in the image of God, that he loves them, that he cares about them, and that the kingdom of God belongs to them. So friends, everything that I've said so far is... is is really good news for everybody in this room, no matter what your ability levels may be. 
It's good news, actually, for every human being on the planet because spiritually, you and I are, Scripture says, beyond disabled. It says that we are dead. Spiritually, on our own, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. That we cannot make ourselves holy. And death is really the ultimate disability, isn't it? To be spiritually dead means you can't do anything. And in the text that we read this morning, Jesus gives us a promise He says that we will be blessed if we are not offended by him. Well, it's not the way we're used to maybe hearing the gospel, but that really is the gospel proclamation. That root word there that says offended, the root word in the Greek is skandalizo. And and the reason I share that with you is because you hear that and you know what that means, right? Skandalizo, scandalous, right? So Jesus, what Jesus is saying is this, if you find that being affiliated with Jesus is something scandalous, something you want to avoid, something to stay away from, you will not receive his blessing. But the positive implication here is that if you do recognize your own inability to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your own failure to love your neighbor as yourself, and then cling to Jesus as the one who alone can make you right for God, as the one who made the perfect sacrifice and atonement for all of your sin, as the one who lived a righteous and perfect life in your place, and if you're clinging to him, you will be blessed, you will be made clean, you will be brought to new life. So friends, if you're here this morning and and you have not come to a place where you're clinging to Jesus, I encourage you to do that, to come to him, to know him, to experience his forgiveness, to experience new life in Christ. That's why he came. Well, let me turn quickly back to this idea of disability and disability ministry. Um, God is a heart for disability ministry, and we see that throughout the early church. You see it throughout uh, the New Testament. You see it as the apostles continued his ministry of healing But you see it in the church history as well. From the early church on, Christians through the ages have always made an effort to care for those with disabilities. And knowing then that God has a heart for disability ministry, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when when Jesus gives you and me the following command in, in Luke 14, verse 13. This comes between two parables, and right in between there, Jesus has a dialogue, and he gives a command. And he says this, he says, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This is a command to you and me, right? He's saying when you have a party, when you have a gathering, these are the folks you should be inviting. Why? Because if you understand what Jesus has done for you, you, out of response, out of joy, out of gratitude, want to put that into action. You want to live it out. And one way we do that is by having, inviting folks to, to our dinner parties uh, that are, are often ostracized and alienated because we were alienated from God and Christ brought us to him. So Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And friends, if we're supposed to, and we are, invite them to our home table, then as a church, you have an obligation to invite them to the Lord's table. Did you know that according to the CDC, one in four Americans has a disability? One in four Americans has a disability. So think about your neighbors in your neighborhood. When I first read that, it seemed a high number to me. And then I thought about our neighborhood. We live in a cul-de-sac and my wife's done a 
marvelous job of getting to know every one of our neighbors. And I started thinking through them and through the, about their lives. And I realized, you know, one in four is right about where we're at in our neighborhood where individuals impacted by disability. And those are just the ones that we know about. There are other data that, sh- that show and support the reality that most families impacted by disability don't attend a church. In fact, they, they often don't attend church because it's either been, it's too hard for them to get to church or because they've had a bad experience at a church. They've been made to feel unwelcome. Michael Bates is a Reformed theologian, and he's the father of a daughter with profound disabilities. And he relates how uh, they visited churches, and his daughter's in a wheelchair, and they've had to figure out how to get her wheelchair up a, a whole bunch of stairs just to get into the church. Right? That's difficult. That's hard. If you had to do that every week, you might tire of it. You might say, you know, we're not going to go there anymore. They've also gone to the churches and because uh, he gets invited to speak and preach, and they brought their daughter when she was younger to nursery. And they've had workers in Sunday school and nursery ask them the question. They said, you're not going to leave her here with us, are you? Uh, now, again, I, I, understand, I understand the question. There's no malice there. We're talking about volunteers who just, they don't know what to do and they don't want to do the wrong thing. But on the receiving side, for mom and dad, that, that begins to feel a little bit unwelcome, right? And you might think, I don't know if, you know, if we would go back to that church. Experiences like that can make the church, as one person says, feel like a, a, a real city on a hill, meaning physically inaccessible and socially inhospitable. And of all places, friends, the church, the church, the church of Jesus Christ should be a model of the accessible community because it is, after all, the church that is the entry point into knowing God's love, right? We're all spiritually disabled, but it's through the church that we come to know of Christ and of his love. The church should be that place. I think, uh, you know, when I, I, I'm coming here again, I was thinking through the facility and, and, and largely very, very accessible. Some of our churches are not. Some of our churches uh, are very inaccessible physically. But think about this idea of the church being the accessible community and the entry point into God's love. I, I, I love uh, what, ha- what the Roman Catholic Church did up in Los Angeles when they built uh, a new cathedral, what is it, about 20 plus years ago. So uh, just caveats, there are certainly lots of places uh, that, that we and I would disagree with Roman Catholics and points of theology but when they, built, when they built this cathedral, one thing that they did uh, on the interior is that on, on one whole side, you know, there's a dais. If, you, if you've been in some of the older Catholic churches, right, you know there's a dais and then the altar right up on, on that dais. And you think about in Roman Catholic theology what all of that represents, right, access to God and, and all of that. And on the, whole, the one whole side of the dais, uh, Rather than stairs to get up there, it's just a very gradual slope that goes back to where the pews are. And the whole thing's marble, which makes it even more spectacular, I think. But just think about what that communicates if you came to that church, right? What it would say is if you're in a wheelchair, if you're in a walker, it doesn't matter. You have access. You have access to God and his forgiveness. That's an architectural way to communicate it. But we need to communicate that reality 
through who we are as a church body. We talked about that this morning, right? You're a church. Each one of you is a brick. Each one of you is needed. So what, so what is this church, this Harbor City Church, communicating uh, to our friends and families impacted by disability? With all that said, I think there are three, three implications uh, for our congregations. Number one, I think our congregations are incomplete if we don't do this. I, I hate to keep going back to it, but it's perfect, Omar. Thinking about the church as a body, one of the ways the Lord refers to the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, our Lord says this. He says, the parts of the body, meaning the church, that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. What does it mean? It means our congregations are actually incomplete if we're not intentionally thinking about how we disciple and unfold those impacted by disability. We're just incomplete without them. So that's implication number one. Implication number two, then, is, you know, we have to do whatever it takes to accommodate our teaching, our discipleship, uh, so that those impacted by disability can understand the love that God has for them in Christ. Um, one of the churches I have the privilege of working with, uh, they, they have one, one of the men in their Bible study had the courage to finally come up to the pastor and say, hey, brother, I want you to know I have radical dyslexia. I love coming to Bible study, but I am unable to read the scripture uh, because of my dyslexia. What can we do, right? We don't, I don't think we normally think in those categories, but we need to, right? What would it take for that brother to be able to participate in the study? There are some accommodations that can be made that can make it easier for him. And, and the list could go on and on, uh, but we, we do need to be intentional about that. Uh, I think our default is like, well, this is the way we do church. This is the way we do Sunday school. This is the way we do discipleship. But we need to pay attention and recognize that, that we have brothers and sisters who are going to need some, some accommodation so that they too can learn what we're learning together. Um, so remember what Jesus did, right? He turned the shame into praise. He, he took outsiders made them insiders. He brought them into the covenant community. So the question is, how do we do that? How do you do that here at Harbor? What would it look like? So in addition to, to discipleship, I think third implication is we need to be churches that, that practice hospitality where everyone is welcome, everyone is befriended, everybody is loved, including those impacted by disability. Um, so we've seen from the passage, right, that God has a heart for disability ministry. That's really the heart of disability ministry. It's God's heart for it. And so it begs the question then, right? If, if our church is committed, if Harbor is committed to, to engaging kids and teens and adults impacted by disability, engaging them with the gospel, folding them into community, into, really into all areas of congregational life, you know, what, what is it going to look like? What would that look like? Um, so I shared this illustration with a few of you earlier uh, I apologize that I'm sharing it again, but I think it's worth repeating. I, I think I think that what this would look like in practice is a little bit like Martha's Vineyard between the years 1894, or sorry, 1694 and 1952. What, you guys are not, what? That doesn't resonate with you all? The blank looks. No, but Martha's Vineyard, right, is, is off the coast a little bit. And it's very isolated. And there was a gentleman who settled there in 1694. His name is Jonathan Lambert. And he was deaf, and he carried a recessive gene for deafness. And because the island 
was isolated geographically. There was a lot of intermarriage on the island. And as a result, the different little villages on that island had a significant deaf population, anywhere between 1 in 4 to 1 in 25, depending on which little village you were in. But what was fascinating is that during that time period, um, everybody on the island learned sign language. They developed their own sign language. And every single person there knew how to use it. And they did use it, even if they didn't have a deaf member in their family. And they didn't use it just to communicate with their deaf friends. They would use it to communicate with each other. Fishermen would use it to communicate at long distances. If a group of hearing friends were talking and their deaf friend came up, they automatically switched to sign, just naturally switched to sign language. What's the result of all that? As a result of that, there were no social barriers to being deaf. Uh, The evidence is really clear. Those who were deaf were well-educated. They had the same job, same income levels, married and had kids. They served in the community. They weren't segregated. They participated in the full life of the community. In a word, deafness became ordinary. It wasn't disabling. So what does it look like, you know, to be an accessible community? I think it looks a little bit like that. So this morning, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to think about what it's going to look like here at Harbor. Think about what it's going to look like in your own life to be more intentional about unfolding families impacted by disability. It's really one one tangible way that we can show and share our love for God with our neighbors and with those around us. And friends, as we come to the table this morning, as we come to this table, we can be glad that God is a heart for disability ministry, Right? Because as I said, on our own, apart from Christ, we are all spiritually disabled. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has healed us. We were outsiders, and now we're part of his family, and he invites us to eat at his table. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, for this, uh, for your word, for what it reveals to us of who you are. Thank you for what it shows us of Jesus and that we can see his heart of compassion on display and know that it extends to every one of us in this room. That Jesus has compassion on us so much so that he came to live in our place. He lived that perfect life in our place. And we get, we get the credit that he came to die in our place even though we deserve it and he didn't. That he has made us right with God even though we were separate from God, spiritually dead. Lord, we thank you for that good news and the glimmers of it that we see, but we thank you too that when Jesus was here walking on this earth, he was intentional about seeking out, reaching out to, in bringing healing to those impacted by disability so that they could be restored in their relationship to you, to their neighbor. So Father, we pray together this morning that you make us more aware of those around us who are impacted by disability, that you give us similar hearts of compassion to reach out, to unfold. We pray that you would, that you would move here at Harbor to help this church be a place where anyone is welcome, as it says in the, in the worship folder, regardless of ability. And they can live this out in practice. Give them the wisdom they need. Give them the, the courage and the, the creativity they need. But we pray, Lord, that here, this little outpost of your kingdom, Harbor City Church, would be one where anyone is welcome, regardless of their ability. 
They can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need you. We need your spirit. So Lord, please fill us with your spirit and through the indwelling of your spirit, help us to be men, women, and children who reflect your heart of compassion for those with disabilities. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.